We're continuing our Echo series on the Ten Commandments with the Eighth Commandment. The Bible says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is God's word. A couple weeks ago when we studied the Sixth Commandment, you might remember that I said, uh, if I were to take the sum total of everything that I had learned about the Sixth Commandment for the majority of my life and try to articulate to you what the Sixth Commandment was, I would have said something like, don't have sex with somebody who is not your spouse. But we learned when we studied the Sixth Commandment that the, the Sixth Commandment is far more broad and nuanced than that. While that is part of what the Sixth Commandment says, it really says you shall not in any way adulterate the marriage relationship and therefore adulterate the family. There's a broader principle that comes behind those words if we're willing to actually look at what the words on the page say. I think something similar is happening with the Eighth Commandment. If you were to ask me the sum total of everything that I had learned about the Eighth Commandment for most of my life, I would tell you that the Eighth Commandment was, you shall not lie. But that's not what it says. Uh, you remember, I just read it. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Which is already interesting enough, because that's not really a way that we talk normally in English. What is false testimony against your neighbor? But as I was studying this this week... I found actually something even more surprising and deep about this commandment in the words that are right on the page in front of me. Uh, maybe you remember back to the very beginning of this series when we were on the first commandment. It was our last week of having breakfast for the summer, and I talked about how the Ten Commandments are structured in a really beautiful way. That contrary to the way that Westerners think, where there's kind of a linear progression to things and the most important thing is at the beginning or at the end, I said that Hebrew thought puts the most important thing in the middle of a, a list of things. And we discovered that the middle point of the Ten Commandments is the Fifth Commandment, that you shall not murder. And that every commandment on either side of that Fifth Commandment continues to mirror out each other, both in our relationship to God on the one side and our neighbor on the other. So the fourth and the sixth mirror each other in being about the family. The third and the seventh mirror each other about taking God's gifts and our neighbor's gifts. And the eighth and the second commandment mirror each other as well. You might remember that the second commandment was, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, or maybe you learned it, you shall not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain. That word in vain is really interesting. We said that that's uh, to do something with no reason. And we found out when we studied the second commandment that that means that first of all, of course, we're going to tell the truth about God, that we're going to speak true doctrines of scripture to one another, but also that we would not take God's name upon ourselves without being willing to uphold his reputation. Well, it turns out that despite what your English Bible might have in front of you, that exact same word that gets translated in vain or misuse shows up also in the Eighth Commandment. If you were to literally translate it from, English, or from Hebrew into English, it would say something like, you shall not answer for no reason concerning your neighbor. You shall not answer for no reason concerning your neighbor. So what is that saying to us? Well, maybe you didn't follow my whole linguistic and structural analysis just there. Let me super simplify it for you. The second commandment says, tell the truth about God and uphold God's reputation. The eighth commandment says, tell the truth about your neighbor and uphold your neighbor's reputation. As you speak, do not speak about your neighbor unless you are willing to have a good reason to do so. Or maybe to summarize it, we could just say it uh, like this. The big point is that we ought to have a wise use of our words. A wise use of our words.
That's what the Eighth Commandment is going to teach us today, and with very good reason. Um, as I was studying for this, I, I tried to look up all the Bible verses that talk about how we use our words, and there are hundreds of them, um, but for the sake of time, I'm going to give you only 10 in rapid fire, just to show you how the Bible thinks about words. My summary of these, before I give it to you, and maybe you'll notice this as well, is that the Bible reserves some of its strongest language for how we use our words. Check out these verses. Psalm 5 says, not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. And here's the important part. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they tell lies. Proverbs 11 says, though the blessing of the upright, through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. It says, by the words of people, a whole city can be destroyed. Proverbs 18, 6 and 7 says, the lips of fools bring them strife and their mouths invite a beating. Their mouths, the mouths of fools are their undoing. Their lips are a snare to their very lives. At least the Proverbs thinks that your words can get you killed. Proverbs later says in chapter 18, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So not only can your words get you killed, but they can get somebody else killed. One more proverb. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. The reason I highlight tree of life there is this is the one place in the Bible besides the Garden of Eden at the very beginning and the very end of Revelation where the tree of life shows up, the entire Bible. You have the beginning where God has created everything perfect and the end where God restores everything to be perfect and right smack dab in just about the middle of the Bible is this verse where God says, your words bring a tree of life. And you, you pack that into what the Bible says at the beginning and the end, the power of your words. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Don't you want to tattoo that on your child's thigh? Matthew, Jesus talks, and he says, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. In other words, it is not what you do that defiles you. It is what you speak that defiles you. James writes, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceives themselves and their religion is worthless. And he later says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. You want to ask James, how do you really feel after that? One last one from Peter. He says, whoever would love life and see good deeds must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. At least Peter's opinion is that the good, the good that you are going to experience in your life is directly to por- proportional to how you use your words. The Bible cares deeply about words. And this is really because words are part of our creation. As I was telling the children, um, in the beginning, God just said, let there be, and there was. This is the first page of the Bible. God continues to say, let there be, let there be. He doesn't zap lightning bolts from his fingers or anything like that. He just talks. And things are created. But then something really interesting happens. Once he creates human beings, he, he does this really interesting thing that you maybe just pass by as you read the first chapters of Genesis. The, the Bible tells us that God brought the animals to the man, to Adam, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. You know, as I thought about this as a child, I always just thought, well, God was like delegating some of the work, right? Like, here, Adam, you just make up some names for these things. And Adam was there just sitting on a chair or something, like trying to be as creative as he possibly can with sounds in order to identify creatures from one another. But I think something way deeper is happening here because every verse in that first couple chapters of Genesis is infinitely profound. I think God is showing Adam, as soon as he creates him, the power of his words. 
Because if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, naming something is not just about giving it a set of sounds to identify it from one other thing. It's about giving it an identity. It's about giving it a purpose. You can maybe think most obviously of when God renames Jacob to Israel to say that he is the one who struggles with God. A name means more than just you're this person and not that person. It gives you an identity. And I don't know exactly how this all played out in Genesis 1, but I I get the feeling that something like Adam named a creature, and then that creature kind of took on the identity of the name that Adam gave him, was what was happening. Regardless of whether that's happening or not, what we can say is that as soon as God creates Adam, he says, Adam, let me show you how to use your words. Now we are on the other side of the fall into sin. Corrupted from our creation, just like Werner, who was baptized into God's family to forgive that sin. But that sin still clings to us. The Bible says that baptism is not the removal of your sinful nature, but it is the pledge of a clean conscience towards God, that God says to you, you can have a clean conscience. Even though you continue to sin, even though you still have a sinful nature, you are clean. And what we love, that promise of baptism, which gives us that clean conscience, we sometimes forget that that other portion where he says, this doesn't mean your sinful nature is God. And you know that all too well. You know that in our corruption, we use words to create evil things. Not to create good things, to bring order to the world around us, but to destroy, to tear down, to hurt. And so we're going to see what the Bible has to say about that. We're going to break the teaching into three parts today. We're going to talk about how to speak, how to hear, and who we are. Those are the three points in your note sheet if you're following along with us. The first point, how to speak. Uh, In the section from Ephesians that we read from the Apostle Paul, we got a really great summary of this first point. Um, He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is really a two-part passage. Uh, Paul is first saying, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. That word unwholesome um, literally translates to something like uh, of no value, worthless. So Paul says that the words that come out of our mouths should not be of no value. They should be adding value to the conversation that we're in, to the people around us. And that's kind of what he transitions to in the second part of the passage. He says, we instead should only speak things that are helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So we ought to use our words to speak in a way that builds others up according to their needs and benefits those who listen. There's two groups in that. Do you hear it? On the one hand, that we would speak about other people in a way that builds them up, and we would speak about those people in a way that builds them up in order that those who hear us speak would benefit. So that's the principle. Words ought not to build, or excuse me, they ought to build up, not to tear down. It's a pretty basic, straightforward principle. This is what God would say. This is how you speak. But you and I both know this is much more complicated than that. Uh, In order to think through this a little bit, I want us to consider the three estates that God has put us into, the family, the church, and society. When you speak to your kids uh, at home, or maybe you're speaking to your spouse, do the words that you use make them feel bad, feel guilty, feel shame, to make sure that they know that they were wrong? Or, on the other hand, do you use your words to correct for the sake of blessing and building them up? What might that look like? It's not that you would ignore when 
your spouse maybe does something that hurts your feelings or your kids disobey your commands, but the way that you approach that conversation is important. What if in, instead you would talk to your kids and say, I want you to be a blessing to your brothers or sisters or to your father or mother. And so I want you to do this right because God has, has made you a gift to other people. Well, you see, you still correct the problem, but you do it in a way that builds others up. Or if you're speaking to your spouse, say something like, I want to help you know how to love me better because I know that you do. Instead of saying, how could you? Why would you? How thoughtless? You say, how can I build you up? You correct the same issue, but you do it in a way that doesn't tear down, that isn't unwholesome, but instead adds value to that person's life. Now, this is really hard. And I think some of you, at least as I look at the smirks on your faces, are thinking of situations where you wish you would have said something like that. So let's practice. I want you to lean over to somebody who is your family, if you have family here. If you don't have family, lean over to someone near you and say something nice about them. Build them up in some way. I'll give you one minute to do it. Go ahead. All right, now I want to I know, you don't have to tell me, but I just want you to think about this. How many of you struggled with saying something genuinely kind and not something that was at least underhanded or sarcastic or a little bit biting even as it was kind? We struggle with this, right? Even when we try to be kind and build others up, we still can't help ourselves sometimes but include some underhanded comments. But God would have us speak in a way that builds others up according to their needs. What about the church? As we speak at church, uh, and we talk maybe about or to fellow believers, are our words um, helping others think more highly of another person? Or do we complain about them? Do we say something like, well, you know, you know how she is. He always does that. He's just kind of that person. Or instead, do we speak in a way that, that builds another up? He's such a blessing to our church. I don't know what we would do without her. Even though they have flaws, even though they disappoint you, are words seeking to build one another up according to their needs. Now, my sense is, actually, we do pretty okay at this, so maybe this one will be easier than your family, but let's practice. Lean over to somebody near you and say something nice about somebody else in this room. I'll give you a minute to do that.
All right, maybe a little bit easier. As we think about complimenting one another, uh, this is the kind of thing that builds up a church culture, to being a place where other people want to be. Because they hear your conversation about others and they think to themselves, well, if that's how they talk about them, it's probably the same way they would talk about me. Let's move it away from the people of our church, though, but up to the organization. Like, let's think of Cross of Life as a whole, not the individuals who make up the congregation. But as we think about our church, do we speak in a way that builds up our reputation as a group? Or do we speak in a way that tears that group down? I mean, every church has weaknesses, and uh, it's actually on purpose that we make our church in such a way that not everyone, or excuse me, everyone should feel a little bit uncomfortable here. We do that so that we can reach as many people as possible. And so there might be things that you don't like or ways that things are done that you don't like, but do you speak that way? Or do you instead constructively approach the issues that we have as a congregation? Why don't we practice? I'll give you one minute. Say something nice about our church to somebody sitting near you. I promise this isn't me just trying to get out of preaching today. I really want you to practice it. I'll give you about a minute. Go ahead. All right, I think that was getting close to a minute. You know what I love about this? Is as we practiced all three of those, four of those things, uh, I just saw lots of smiles. Isn't that an amazing thing? Then when we speak in a way that builds others up according to their needs, it brings joy to those who listen. It benefits those who listen. It's almost like the Bible knows what it's talking about. We got one more facet to look at, though, and that's how we deal with our society. When we speak about the world around us, do we speak in a way that builds others up according to the needs, or do we speak in unwholesome ways that tear others down? For example, if you took the last 10 things that you posted on your social media and we were to put them in the bucket of either building up or tearing down, how many would fit in each bucket? Would your comments or your posts be cynical, sarcastic, biting, critical? Would they be there to make yourself look good at the expense of somebody else? To make sure that everyone knows how bad that person is? Or are they there to encourage, to put the best construction on things, to build others up? As we think about how we talk to our neighbors about societal issues or politicians, do we speak in a way that builds others up according to their needs, or do we tear them down? You know, I find this to be very common, that we will speak about, uh, pick your politician, and we will talk about how terrible they are, and we usually do it for one of maybe two reasons. The first is so that we can look good and show how we're not like them, and we would never be like them if we were in their shoes, which is probably actually false, but we like to believe that about ourselves. The second is to, I guess, abstractly get people to think differently and do something differently about that politician or that policy, but how often does that actually happen? Even if we were to say, this person is so bad because of this, what are you actually accomplishing with those words? Just trying to get them not to vote for them? Or to actually do good to their neighbor, to actually change their lifestyle? 
Even sometimes when our words are thoughtful and they are critical, at least in a seemingly constructive way, they don't always lead to good action, which makes them just as worthless as words that are biting, cynical, or sarcastic. It's useless talk. It's unwholesome. And I would pray that we as a congregation would be a place where when we talk about the issues of the day or the people who are in charge, that our words would build up, not tear down. Now, I'm not going to get you to practice this because there are a thousand different issues you could talk about, but I do want you to think about this as you go through your life this week. How do I speak about the things happening in the world? Am I speaking in a way that just tears things down to make me look good? Or am I speaking in a way that is constructively helping people to change their life, to build others up according to their needs? But I want to press this a little bit farther. And this might get in some of your personal space. Um, Ladies, I think this is particularly a temptation for you. And if you think I'm just being chauvinist or making that up, I'm not. The Bible actually says that the Eighth Commandment is going to be harder for women to follow than men. Paul says this in two places in the New Testament. He says, young women get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but they also are busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. And in another place, he says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live and not to be slanderers. You might say to yourself, well, that's awfully on the nose, Paul. Let me give you a couple thoughts on that. Um, First of all, there are other sins that men struggle with more, right? Who commits most of the murders in the world? Men. Who generally struggle with sexual temptation more, than, uh, more men or women? Men. And so women, this is your spot. This is where, where Satan looks at you and says, I think I've got a good chance with you. And so buckle down. Think about this deeply. Press this on your heart. Because God wants you to be the source of speech that builds one, another's, one another up. So why do we do this? Why do we struggle with this? And how can we get better at this? Well, Jesus gives us some insight in Luke. He says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Last week, we said that money and our budget has a direct line to what we worship. Uh, In a similar way, Jesus says that our words have a direct line to what's in our heart. And I think what we immediately think of when we we hear those words is about five other people, and we say, well, now I know what's in their heart, (laughs) because I hear their words. But Jesus would have us reflect on ourselves. If my words are biting and cynical and critical and sarcastic, and underhanded, and tearing down. What's going on in my heart? What am I filling my ears and my mind and my soul up with day to day? Is it the conversation on TV, which is constantly trying to tear others down? Is it the, the, the entertainment on your phone, which usually is at the expense of other people? Is it the things that you've heard about yourself from other people throughout your life that are not true because of what Jesus has said to you in your baptism? The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so if we do want to pursue words that are kind, that are generous, that are patient, that are building up others according to their needs, it would start by filling our heart with Jesus, by hearing his words, by hearing of his grace, by knowing that that's our identity, which we'll talk about at length later in this sermon. But one more thing for us to consider. 
And that is that I think sometimes we are just moving at such a fast pace that we don't have the time to think about how to speak. The book of Proverbs says this. It says, do you see someone who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for them. This isn't about somebody who is talking fast, otherwise I would be in trouble. This is about somebody who speaks without thinking. A person who speaks without taking the time to consider their words before the words come out of their mouth. And I think very often because we jam-pack our schedule with everything we can and then fill in the gaps with the stuff on our phones and our TVs, we don't have the time to think about how to answer somebody. So you don't have to listen to me on this. This is just my advice to you as a friend. But when someone's talking to you, take the time to just listen to what they're saying. Don't think about what you're going to say next. You have time for that as soon as they're done. And it might be awkward the first time because they'll finish talking and you'll have nothing to say because you're actually thinking about what they say, but they'll appreciate it because what will come out of your mouth next will be thoughtful, will be generous, it will be based on what they said. A person who speaks in haste, well, there's more hope for a fool than for them. So that's how to speak. Almost and equally important is how to hear. How to hear. Um, Martin Luther gives this really good explanation to the Eighth Commandment in his small catechism. He writes this. He says, We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and take his words and actions in the kindest possible way. That last phrase is the one I want you to focus on. Taking a person's words and actions in the kindest possible way. Uh, in many ways, this relates to what the commandment was trying to tell us when we spoke about using our words, answering for no reason. You remember that? We said that you shall not answer concerning your neighbor for no reason. In other words, you ought not to speak about your neighbor, to answer what somebody else would say about your neighbor, unless you have the purpose of building them up. If what you are going to say is going to be unwholesome talk, worthless, or is going to tear that person down, it is better not to speak. But that comes from how you hear. How do you listen to the words and actions of the people around you? Do you immediately jump to conclusions? Do you love a juicy bit of gossip? Do you love to see others fail because it makes you feel better about yourselves? These things are not appropriate for Christians. We take a neighbor's words and actions in the kindest possible way, and it, could you imagine for a second what it would be like if we did that? Can you imagine what your home would be like if whenever your spouse disappointed you, you tried to first figure out how they might have been trying to do the right thing? Can you imagine what our church would be like if everyone here just ignored the people who spoke negatively? What, would you, uh, can you imagine what our society would be like if we weren't all sucked into the latest big, big uh, bit of partisan news, but instead we, we turned it all off and said, I'm actually just going to love my neighbor. I'm going to focus on the people around me. What if we were all just a little bit less offended by everything? I mean, how quickly any word that is spoken about us or about anyone that we love turns us into a rage. We're so quickly offended by the things that people say. Can you imagine how beautiful life would become if we just took people's words and actions in the kindest possible way? But maybe let me take this a step further with you. Um, most of us are, are terrible at accepting criticism. Uh, whether it's a critical email, it's a bad grade on a test, it's a word of condemnation, we're really bad at it. And we immediately take it personally, at least most of us do. But we really ought not to. Uh, as Christians, we ought to be the most willing to hear criticism of our life. 
for a couple of reasons. First of all, we believe that a person is by nature sinful, that it is their natural default setting to be bad, because the Bible says so, that we were sinful from the time we were conceived, sinful from the time we were born. And we believe that our identity has nothing to do with our behavior. It has everything to do with Christ's behavior for us. We are not banking on our works to make us righteous, to make us good. And so if someone comes to us and says, you're bad, you're wrong, we say, yes, and it's okay because Jesus has got me. And so I ought to be willing to hear criticism with generosity and patience. But I think sometimes we struggle because we don't believe the gospel. We don't believe the gospel. We believe it on paper, but we struggle to let it seep down deep into our bones that my identity is in Christ. It is not in what people think of me. Can you imagine if we were actually willing to take criticism, how much we would grow? I mean, if we believe that every person is by nature sinful, then criticism, even if it is completely or almost completely unfounded, at least has the benefit of making us reflect on our lives and go back to Scripture and see how we can grow in being a benefit to our neighbor. Most of the world can't do that. Most of the world is being taught that you should just be yourself and no one can say anything negative about you at all. And while, of course, as we criticize one another, as we critique one another, we ought to do it with that same kind of building up attitude that Paul talks about in Ephesians, in the same way we ought to receive that criticism. I think about this uh, because part of my job is to criticize you. Uh, You asked me in God's name to be your pastor, which means that I'm going to speak God's word to you, and sometimes it's going to criticize your life. If you hear me come to you and, and tell you God's word says this, and your life doesn't line up. How are you going to react? I've been doing this long enough to know that many people don't react well. They run away, they blame me, they blame somebody else. What I know is those who believe the gospel are willing to hear it, are willing to repent, are willing to run to Jesus with their sin, and then willing to try to amend their sinful life, to become a person who speaks or acts in a way that is uh, befitting of a Christian and generous to their neighbor. This brings us to the last point. Um, Oh, sorry, I missed missed one thing on this. Um, One thing we have to cover, though, before we go uh, on from this taking words and actions in the kindest possible way, is a lie that Satan wants us to believe. Um, Oftentimes, this section of Martin Luther's explanation of the catechism is used to explain away sin. Right, so somebody is doing something that is actually contrary to God's word, and, and someone will say, well, you know, take words and actions in the kindest possible way. That's not what this means. It doesn't mean ignore sin. It doesn't mean ignore lies. It doesn't mean ignore what is contrary to God's word. It means to go after that person with the same kind of love, affection, and passion that Jesus would. To love them so much that not only are you going to chase them down with their sin, but you're going to even more vigorously chase them down with the good news that that sin is forgiven. So never let us be a congregation where we say, well, I'm just taking words and actions in the kindest possible way, which means I abdicate the responsibility to convict people of their sin. If you want to take a note, I know I have a blank for it in the notes sheet. Taking things in the kindest possible way does not mean obscuring the truth. It does not mean hiding from what is truly in front of us. Okay, that does bring us to the last point. If you're taking notes with us, who we are, who we are. When I was born, my parents gave me a name. They gave me a name to distinguish me from all other human beings. And those of you who have had children, you've had the privilege of doing the same thing. You get to call your child whatever you want to call them, 
And then you put it on a birth certificate and the government recognizes that this person is unique and special from all other people. We might call this our identity. And our society is very much concerned right now with things like identity theft. Being able to take your name and using it in a way that is inappropriate. But our identity is more than just the name that we have on the front of our birth certificate, more than the sounds that make up our uh, delineation between us and other humans. Our identity is something far deeper. If I were to ask you, who are you really? You might have any number of things that you would call yourself. You would say, maybe I am a hard worker, or I'm generous, or I'm kind, or I look out for other people. Maybe if you were honest, you would pick out some of your negative qualities. I'm a little bit critical. Sometimes I'm impatient. I work too hard. I care a little bit too much about what other people think. All these things make up who you are. They're words. Words that maybe were even spoken to you. I mean, how many people have some phrase or sentence or word from somebody who is really important in their life still ringing in their head years after? Maybe it was a critical word, a word that, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I don't love you anymore. You're always a failure. You're never enough. Maybe it was a a word that built up. I'm proud of you. I love you. I, I think you're the best. Words have this way of building up our identity, and I I bet if you would take stock of everything that you think about yourself, you could trace back all those things to something that somebody said about you. Who we are comes from our words. It comes from the words that people speak about us. Let me give you a really dumb example. Uh, When I was growing up, my parents gave me the name Caleb, and they told me that Caleb means brave. And I took that personally. I was like, Caleb means brave? All right, here we go. And I I remember specifically having moments in my life where I was scared and I thought to myself, well, my name is Caleb, so I have to be brave. And I was. And it was great. What a blessing to have such a positive identity to chase after. God has given you a positive identity to chase after. At the very end of the Bible, the very last chapter of the entire book, He says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Your identity is not brave or whatever your name means. Your identity is that you are in Christ. Your identity comes from God's word. And your identity is the same as what Werner received here in the waters of baptism, the name of God put on his forehead, the name of God which is on your forehead. The word of God that says you are loved, you are accepted, you are acknowledged, you are wanted, you are brought in, you are kept safe, that you are, you are the apple of his eye. All these things are true about the, you. They are your identity. And they're far more true than my name meaning brave. It turns out Caleb doesn't mean brave. Uh, it's actually just the very basic Hebrew word for dog. <laughs> Which was kind of depressing when I found that out. You know, you start learning Hebrew as a Bible student and you find out that your name is just the generic word for dog. But here's the good news. What God has spoken about you, you're never going to find out is not true. My identity was brave for many years until I found out it wasn't true. Your identity is in Christ. And it will always be. You are in Christ. You are everything that Christ is to God. Acceptable, perfect, righteous, brought in at the right hand of God's throne. 
Not because of you, but because God has put his name on you. He has spoken words about you. And only when you have that operating in the background will you be able to change the way you hear words about yourself or the way you speak to others. You will suddenly be able to hear all the words that people say as secondary to what your Father in heaven says about you. And you will be able to speak in a way that mirrors your Father as you speak to others. So let's ask God that he would bless our words with his words. Lord Jesus, thank you for the words that you spoke over each of us in our baptism that made us your child. Continue to speak your words over us, words of forgiveness, of love, of acceptance, of kindness and generosity in Christ. Remind us that no matter what our name is or no matter what our name means, we have a greater name that has been put on us. That our identity is not the things that we have heard about ourselves over the many years of our lives, but the words that you say to us every time we open your scriptures. And I pray that as a result, as that seeps into our soul, we listen to people's words and actions in the kindest possible way, and that the words that come out of our mouth build one another up according to our needs and benefit those who listen. We ask that for our congregation, because we know that your, power, your word does not go out from you empty, but does what you want it to do. In your name, amen.